You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. It's Wednesday, April 13, 2022. Tonight on WNUR News, we hear from scientists about the Webb Telescope, a look into Bridgerton's costume design with a Northwestern fine art student, and a deep dive into video album and musical film genre with the Pet Shop Boys' It Couldn't Happen Here. Those stories coming up tonight on WNUR News at 6. Thanks for tuning in. The James Webb Space Telescope launched into space last December. Since then, it's floated a million miles away in space with the purpose of seeing the universe's oldest galaxies. To learn more about NASA's most ambitious project, WNUR News reporter Nick Song spoke with some astronomy experts in March. One of them is an astronomer here at Northwestern. The other, NASA's lead scientist for the telescope. All systems are go. We're inside a minute now. T-minus 50 seconds and counting. On December 25th, 2021, a rocket roughly the size of the Statue of Liberty lifted off in French Guiana, packed on board the most advanced infrared telescope in the history of mankind. The rocket escaped Earth's orbit, and weeks later, the James Webb Space Telescope reached its destination, Lagrange Point 2, a stationary point a million miles away from Earth, perfectly balanced between the Sun and the Earth's orbits, free from interference. And we have engine start. And liftoff. Décollage, liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. The field of astronomy stands on the precipice of scientific discovery. Webb has fully deployed, culminating two and a half decades of planning and production, resulting in a device a hundred times more powerful than the aging Hubble telescope. People are understandably excited probably none more so than those involved on the scientific side of Webb. The astronomers with projects approved for Webb's initial round of research, the scientists at NASA who put this research into action, and the individuals who've organized this entire process from the very start. Just like launching a satellite into space, discovering the secrets of the universe with the Webb telescope is a multi-stage process. So far so good, but there are a lot more steps uh, ahead of us. Uh, But man, if it all comes together the way it's supposed to, it is going to knock our socks off. I'm rather hoping there's a discovery that says, gosh, we didn't know that was there. We have to go look at that more. That's Dr. John Mather. I'm senior project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope, and I work at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, which is just outside Washington, D.C. In 2006, Dr. Mather received the Nobel Prize in Physics for his work on cosmic microwave background radiation. Those discoveries helped cement the Big Bang model as the leading theory behind the origin of the universe. He's a big deal in the world of astrophysics. Well, as senior project scientist, I'm responsible for deciding what we ought to do uh, collectively with all the scientists that we work with and uh, making sure that our engineering team can do that because it's pretty challenging. Mather is the last original JWST team member still at NASA, having been the head scientist on web since 1995 when the project began. He helped decide the scientific instruments that would be aboard Webb. We had committees and committees and committees, and we argued and argued in the initial sketch. This is what astronomers really want, and let's see if we can find a way to make it happen. 
The engineering to get Webb into L2 orbit is complicated enough, but settling on the best tools to pack is a beast unto itself. Sure, there have been infrared space telescopes before, but never one in an orbit so far away as Webb. Mess up, and you'll realize the screw you're trying to loosen doesn't fit the Phillips head screwdriver in your pocket, and the tool cabinet is a million miles away. NASA needed to make sure the tools aboard Webb were the right ones for the present moment and the future. Basically, we said, well, we've got these wonderful scientific challenges, and how could you possibly observe something that would tell you the answer? It's a little too hard to anticipate what scientists want to do 10, 20, 30 years in the future. We'd better have a general purpose set of tools. NASA settled on four scientific instruments, a near-infrared spectrographing camera called NERSPEC and NERCAM, a mid-infrared instrument called MIRI, and a combination fine guidance sensor and near-infrared imaging tool. Each of these instruments include components commonly found in research telescopes, including the spectrometer. We hear that a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, for an astronomer, a spectrum is worth a thousand pictures. The spectrometer tells you chemical composition of that object, how hot it is, how it's moving, and um, sometimes even more, like what's the pressure? We expend a lot of time and effort to get a spectrum of an object. Webb also has its own set of specialized components to address its unique situation. It's the only space telescope equipped with a micro-shutter array a grid of a quarter million tiny shutters that can be opened and closed individually. This allows Webb to capture spectrometry data for a hundred individual objects, all in a single light exposure. The way we, from our project side, did it was we're going to build a tool, and then we're going to ask the, the astronomy world, okay, what do you want to work on today? So we asked them all to send in proposals. All these elements that we sort of take for granted and are just here on the earth, gold and silver and platinum, yeah, we still are trying to track down where they come from in the universe. That's Dr. Charlie Kilpatrick. He works as a postdoc fellow at Northwestern University, specifically in the Center for Interdisciplinary Exploration and Research in Astrophysics. I mostly study things that, that change on the sky on day to week timescales. In other words, Kilpatrick spends his time looking at supernovae, fast radio bursts, and other explosions that happen in space. I've used telescopes in Hawaii, like Keck and PanStars, uh, telescopes in Chile, like the Swope telescope, and then of course space-based telescopes, so primarily Hubble in the past, and, and yeah, now I have the James Webb Space Telescope program. Two and a half years ago, Dr. Kilpatrick was studying supernovae and how they produce elements like oxygen and silicon. We can actually see all of the elements that a supernova produces and sort of add them up and infer how much ejecta it produced in the first place. Kilpatrick thought this methodology could potentially be used to study another phenomenon called a kilonova. Whereas a supernova forms after a single star collapses in on itself, a kilonova is when a neutron star careens into another neutron star and tears the smaller one apart. Nebular supernovae. So supernovae go through the, the exact same nebular phase as a kilonova is expected to go through. He hypothesized that kilonovae could be the source behind the universe's heavier elements. With that, Kilpatrick filled out a project proposal with himself as the principal investigator for the very first time, we'd, we would be able to say exactly where elements like neodymium, heavy elements that are 
sort of around that that one on the periodic table are formed. You know, that's a huge draw in terms of you know how James Webb would be able to sort of take a like a qualitative step forward into the next generation of, of nuclear astrophysics. At this point, Kilpatrick had the scientific justification for the project, the method, the goal, and the belief that this could lead to a huge discovery. You know, after that was really the hard work of like proving that it, it would be actually practical to do. To write up the actual project proposal, Kilpatrick and his team used a specially made computer program called the Astronomer's Proposal Tool. They specified what observations they wanted Webb to do. That means marking down the instruments Webb should use, the exact target in space where Webb should look, and how many hours to spend looking, stuff like that. We had sort of this huge effort over the course of like three or four weeks where we were collaborating on this proposal, but also some other ones that are also related to Kilanobe to try to figure out whether this would work and then write everything together. The world awaits Webb and its initial round of discoveries. Exactly what Webb will discover is a prediction based in hope and what ifs more than in educated guesses. If there's one certainty with Webb, it's this. The telescope means so much to the community of astronomy. I first came to observational astronomy in 2010, and even then I kind of knew I wanted to do nucleosynthesis. It almost seems like in some sense I've come full circle back to that, like understanding the origin of the elements. That's one of the most exciting parts about like being involved in this project. For WNUR News, I'm Nick Song. Welcome back to WNUR News. It's 6.12 p.m. Central. Moving on to arts and entertainment, Netflix's hit series Bridgerton provides viewers an addictive twist to Regency-era dramatics. Wigs, corsets, and silk dresses characterize the show, which returned to Netflix in March for season two. Reporter Justine Fisher spoke with a Northwestern fine arts graduate student to gain insight on the show's costume design. The hit Netflix show Bridgerton, set in England's Regency era, follows the lives of the influential Bridgerton family. First gaining popularity with the release of the first season in December of 2020, the show re-entered popular discourse when season two came out on March 25th of this year. One of the most notable aspects of the series is the decadent costume design. From corsets to empire line dresses to large hair pieces, the detailed and extravagant costumes characterize the show. First year of Northwestern University's MFA in stage design program, Benjamin Kress, describes his take on Bridgerton's costumes. You know, they've taken some liberties, but the liberties are to make it like more beautiful. <laughs> so it's just like, it's like candy, I think, to look at. Press studied psychology and theater for undergrad in Ohio, and says he stumbled into costume design. After doing a two-week internship in theater, he stuck with it in Baltimore for six years, before ending up at Northwestern. Cress's favorite Bridgerton character is the Feathertons, whose costumes are meant to be garish, with an acid yellow and out-of-proportionality that Cress finds to be more visually interesting. Yeah, there's this family that, you know, they're kind of like struggling with money all the time. So I think they're meant to be more out of fashion, but um, really just to make them like loud and like trying to fit in the most. The designer has put them in these like 
really bright colors, whereas the other family is more like blues and soft pinks and kind of in general, the whole town is like softer colors, but they're in these like bright, bright colors. Chris also mentioned his admiration for the Queen's wigs in the show. I will say I love like using nat- like natural black hair in the architecture of those wigs is like so cool to see. Chris addresses the controversy around corsets as well. It's like this myth that's been created that corsets were like tearing into people's skin. And, and yes, they were uncomfortable, but they weren't like... And yes, there were some periods where they were rearranging the organs, but like in this, in like the period of Bridgerton, it was more about like A, posture, and B, like keeping everything tight and up because it was all about the bosom. Some actors love corsets and some hate them, but Cress believes they are ultimately a necessary aspect of Regency era costuming. Actors kind of get the two opinions. It's either like, oh, I can't wear a corset, it will interrupt my breath. Um, but then there are some actors who either like love the, what corsets do to their breath or like love what it does to their posture and like helps them inhabit the character. I think for a period, like Bridgerton has said in the Regency period, you almost need that because like, their idea of beauty is like these columns, right? And so the, these corsets help you like be a, a human column. <laughs> Cress sees costumes as part of creating the world, but this doesn't mean designers should be limited by historical accuracy. If you're trying to be so historically accurate, that can be kind of like less fulfilling, I think. So like what they do in Bridgerton is exciting because you, you take like the period silhouette, but then you like push it in the directions that are like uh, interesting for the viewer. So like you push the sexuality, you push the you push the color, so you have contrast between families. Like you're pushing everything in, in that way, diverging from even if you start from like the research, then you like go and see. Like, what can we take from modern life that makes this more interesting, that makes these characters more relatable? Not only if, like, if you're doing a straight period piece, straight, like, are the clothes kind of, like, you're limited there, but also, like, you know, the the conversation and the way these people lived was kind of limiting. And, like, even that can be a little, like, boring to a modern viewer. So that way, it, like, Bridgerton's pushed, of course, in that way, too. I think if you're going to do a period piece, you have to have a point of view. Some of his favorite details stray from the norms of the period. The historically accurate costumes are much more boring. I mean, they're they have them all in like silk, which of course there was silk back then. But like back then, there also would have been like a lot of cotton muslin, a lot of white dresses. Um, but to kind of elevate everything to like the extreme, um, in terms of color, in terms of fabric, everything is just like luxurious and fancy. The designer also does this thing where. She puts, like, almost every costume has, like, a sheer layer of fabric over the silk, which is, like, it's almost kind of hard to see, but it's, like, usually organza. And what it does is, like, it makes these dresses almost glow because it, like, catches the light from the side. It also makes them, like, move in a more beautiful way. Ultimately, Crest believes the liberties taken by Bridgerton's costume designers enhance the meaning of the show. From Evanston, Illinois, Justine Fisher, WNUR News. The video album and musical film genre are mediums seldom explored by mainstream musical artists. Still, popular movies like Pink Floyd, The Wall, Beyonce, Lemonade, and The Beatles' Help come to mind. Reporter Zach McCrary shows us one interesting example of the art form in Pet Shop Boys' It Couldn't Happen Here.
If you don't know or remember who the Pet Shop Boys are, I'll play a bit of their most popular song ever in the US, West End Girls. They're a classic synth-pop duo composed of singer Neil Tennant and keyboardist Chris Lowe, two men that met in a hi-fi shop in Chelsea, England. Since then, they've had massive success in their home country and abroad. The aforementioned West End Girls reached number one on the UK charts as well as the Billboard Top 100. The Guardian called it the greatest UK number one single ever in 2020, praising its quote, heady rush of lust, naivety, disco, and opaque references to Lennon. The song was released both as a single in 1984 and as the second track on their debut album, Please, in 1986. They soon released their second album, Actually, in 87. Both albums saw massive international success. In fact, the latter album helped revive 60s-era soul-slash-country singer Dusty Springfield's career, featuring her on the track What Have I Done to Deserve This. Following the success of their first two albums, production was started on an hour-long music video for the album Actually. The product later evolved into a feature-length film with songs from both of their first two albums. They named it after their song, It Couldn't Happen Here. The film is, in a word, bizarre. It's reminiscent of an era where not everything in a movie had to make sense. In some ways, it could be interpreted as an art film. The first shot we see is a group of dancers on a beach in Clacton-on-Sea, Essex, before dawn, white flags waving in the wind in the background. Tennant, dressed in a full tuxedo, stands at a distance and watches, then walks away and starts biking along the shore. Throughout the film, we meet an array of people who are all quite interesting. Tennant bikes to a shack and meets a man who keeps asking if the person he's talking to is a politician, continually expressing his disgust of them. He also likes peeping at nude women on the beach with a pair of binoculars. Then, a sudden cut to Lowe filling what seems to be a bottomless chest with random juvenile items. He goes downstairs where we find he's been staying in a bed and breakfast run by a man who wears giant ears and a woman who's deeply religious yet extremely coddling. Uncle Dredge here is played by the same man who plays the horny, politician-hating, beachfront postcard salesman. Anyways, Lowe throws his breakfast onto the landlady, likely out of annoyance, and runs away, passing a group of Hell's Angels on the way. Meanwhile, Tennant somehow rises back from the sea and passes a blind priest leading a group of young boys. Confusingly, two of these boys are Tennant and Lowe as children, who are also coexisting in the same scene as their adult selves. Tennant, in a monologue, meanwhile, thinks of the lyrics to It's a Sin. When I look back upon my life, it's always with a sense of shame. I've always been the one to blame. 
for everything I long to do, no matter when or where or who, has one thing in common too. It's a sin. Suddenly, it's night. The two boys separate from the priests and end up at a risque cabaret-style show on the boardwalk where nuns disrobe and dance with men in leather jackets. While It's a Sin plays, people wearing gray, full-face makeup sit in the seats and the priest, in his very deep voice, yell after the kids. Boys! Who wants to leave the room? Eventually, Lowe meets up with Tennant at a mailbox while the latter writes postcards to his mother. One thing to note is that many characters will speak lines from songs, like these gentlemen who are almost hit by a car. And then we go into West End Girls. The interesting thing about the use of music in the movie is that it acts more like a soundtrack than anything else, very much unlike a traditional music video. Sometimes Tenet will be shown on screen singing the lyrics, but the plot isn't built around the album's songs. The movie goes on from there. Later, the duo pick up a hitchhiking killer in the backseat of their car, played by the same man who played the priest, a bit of double meaning perhaps? Then go to a dingy cafe where they order oysters and champagne, Alongside them sit a flamboyant man and his autonomous ventriloquist dummy, as well as Neil Dixon essentially reprising his role as Biggles the pilot from the British movie with the same name. It's a movie that's enthralled in symbolism that can be extremely overbearing at times, yet the film overall has a jovial and cheeky air about it. Lowe's only line in the movie comes when he masquerades as a female fortune teller, for example. The film saw little success both domestically and abroad. Kevin Thomas of the LA Times said then, quote, It couldn't happen here, shouldn't have happened anywhere. Tennant and Lowe have been caught up in what is essentially a string of MTV-type numbers overlaid with a pseudo-surreal style and snatches of confounding philosophical discourse that might have something to do with Einstein's theory of relativity, for all I know. Even more bizarre is that their album, Actually, and the movie somehow unintentionally predicted a British disaster. The song King's Cross revolves around the British underground station King's Cross St. Pancras. Tennant said in the liner notes for the song, There's lots of crime around King's Cross. Prostitution, drug addicts, and a lot of tramps come up to you there. Later summing up the song as, It's an angry song about Thatcherism. In the part of the movie dedicated to the song, Lowe and Tennant travel to a train station. At the same time, a man on fire is shown slowly making his way down the street, driving a car that is likewise on fire. Coincidentally, in November of 1987, an escalator in King's Cross station caught on fire, the flames spreading throughout the underground station. Over 30 people were killed, and a hundred more were injured. Call it foresight, or pure bad luck, the entire situation was tragic. During the movie's editing process, the scene was nearly cut out. However, the victims of the family wanted the scene to stay in the movie, so it stayed. What originally was just a fun musical art film somehow, unfortunately, became a symbol of Thatcherism and tragedy. At the end of watching it, I can say that it's definitely a product of its time, 
and with it comes the anger, tragedy, and hope that came with it. It might not be a masterpiece, but it sure tried. For WNUR News, I'm Zach McCrary. Welcome back to WNUR News. It's 6.27 p.m. Central. Here in Chicago, the weather has taken an unusually humid and warm turn. It's currently 62 degrees in Evanston, and though residents woke up to rain, we had a sunny break in the early afternoon before showers returned. Winds tonight will range from 10 to 20 miles per hour. Tomorrow, temperatures will drop to the low 40s to 50s with high winds. By Friday, we head into upper 50s with sunnier skies. However, Chicago's fickle spring season will bring a low of 34 for the day. So pack a coat for your morning and evening commutes. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other stories of the day on our website, wnur.news. That's wnur.news. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our producer today is Nick Song, and our reporters are Justine Fisher, Sack McCrary, and Nick Song. From all of us here at WNUR News, I'm Iris Swarthout. Thanks for listening. Catch our next newscast on Friday, April 15th at 6 p.m. Now, back to scheduled programming.